Okay, welcome everyone to Kremlin File. And today we have an honored guest, David Kramer. He was Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy at the McCain Institute and also President of Freedom House. A number of senior posts in the government, including Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor at the State Department. Yeah, and we had him on last year before the war and he, you know, was again sounding the alarm as he has been for over the past decade of what a threat Putin is. So we're really eager to see his views on what has happened and then where he sees this going. So without any further ado, let's welcome David to the pod. David, how are you? I'm great, Monique. It's great to yeah. see you and Olga, and it's great yeah. to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's wonderful. Wonderful to have you back. Okay, we've Welcome back. Lots. <laughs> welcome, welcome. We've got lots and lots of questions, so let's just you know, jump in. All right. Um, David, I wanted to ask you something about our reaction, the reaction of the West to okay, Russia's renewed aggression against Ukraine before. I mean, we saw them in uh, in Georgia, okay? We saw them, uh, let's say, the aggression again in Crimea, in the Donbass, all right, 2014-15, and then continuing up until now. We also saw in Syria, all right. Why, what do you think actually triggered the West to act now, whereas before they didn't? I know it's a big question, but I'm, I'm interested to know what your take on this is. I, I think in this case, Monique, it is the West is getting fed up with Putin um, and has finally belatedly, after all the litany of egregious behavior that you cited, has recognized him as an existential threat. That if he is not stopped in Ukraine, he likely will go on, whether it's toward a NATO member state mm. or toward toward Moldova, Georgia, whatever the case may be. He has essentially already taken over Belarus for all intents and purposes. Mm. Um, but in this case, this is such an egregious uh, violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, a wholly unprovoked, unjustified invasion of Ukraine that with it has come uh, just heart-wrenching war crimes, crimes against humanity. And it is also because the, the West and the United States in particular, its intelligence agencies, knew this was coming. They knew it was coming. Mm. And so I think credit to the West this time for having the right analysis and predicting that the invasion was coming. Credit to the Biden administration and European allies for preparing an unprecedented regime of sanctions against Putin and Russia. And credit for the military buildup in NATO member states that border Ukraine and or Russia, a belated credit to the administration for the delivery of military equipment and weapons to Ukraine. And there, I think the administration deserves some criticism. And I think the intelligence community deserves criticism mm. for this because they got it wrong. They anticipated that Russia would go in and that this would be over quickly mm. and that this would be a kind of cakewalk. There, the intelligence community was kind of mirroring the same thinking that existed in Moscow, where the Russians also thought that they would be able to go in and be embraced essentially as liberators by the Ukrainians from the quote unquote Nazis that the Kremlin keeps talking about, which of course is absurd. Um, and, and so as a result of 
misreading the Ukrainians' ability to defend themselves and overestimating the Russians' capability. I think the administration and other Western governments were reluctant to provide military assistance because they figured it wouldn't make a difference. And and, and then, mm-hmm. and this is where I don't understand their 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 thinking. They worried that providing significant military assistance in the lead up to the invasion would be provocative. It would provoke Putin. And yet they had intel showing them that he was going to invade anyway. So if he's going to invade anyway, what was stopping them from preparing the Ukrainians as much as possible with as much military assistance? The the last thing I'll say um, is I also think the administration, I've given them credit for all the things they got right. um, But stop telling Putin what you won't do. It, 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 is, it is just a strategic blunder yeah. in saying the U.S. won't put forces on the ground. I'm not arguing with that position. I think that's the right position to take. But you don't need to telegraph to your enemy yeah. what your limitations are. Keep Putin guessing. It, and, and then there's also the whole way they've handled certain military assistance from, say, Poland and other countries. They've gotten much better. There's a lot more military assistance going in. Um, credit for what they've gotten right, but also it's important to learn from what they screwed up. Yeah, yeah. Um, that day in December, mm. when when Biden announced no troops on the ground, oh, I mean, I cringe. just it was a cringe moment. But, it but wasn't even cringe. I just, I, he kept yeah. repeating it. Um, yeah. You know, so so one time maybe you say it because I also recognize. Look, the president of the United States has an American audience he has to address. He's not just addressing mm-hmm. right. a Russian audience or Ukrainian audience. Right. But to keep saying it um, was was I think just a, a real blunder. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah, and it gave Putin even more confidence to just, yeah, just go, go ahead in. because he knew Correct. he wouldn't face yeah, exactly. And in that case, they should have just not said anything. Correct. I mean the. American audience mm-hmm. wouldn't, you know, weren't asking our Americans getting involved. So they could have just, you know, just not mentioned anything yeah. at all, like you said. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, I think also with the intelligence, it's not just the Americans that got it wrong in the sense that even the Europeans themselves, Germany, France, everybody was thinking, okay, Ukraine will not be able to withstand a Russian onslaught. So it was, and it was outside experts too. It wasn't just yeah. uh, government agencies that that got um, what would happen if mm-hmm. Russia invaded wrong. Yeah. Um, there, there were a number of very highly respected military analysts outside the U.S. government, outside European governments, who anticipated the same thing. And and you know they they underestimated the the difference between Ukraine of 2014 and Ukraine of 2022, where there has been huge advancements. They underestimated the role of morale in this yeah. in this war, where the Ukrainians are fighting for their country, they're fighting yeah. for their freedom, they're fighting for their lives. The Russians who have been sent there have no idea why they're there. They're they're invading yeah. what Putin had described last July as one people, and, and so they're wondering why are we bombing our own people, so to speak. And and so uh, you know, for for all of that, I think. It, it it needs to be examined once the dust settles because it affected policy. It, it kept the administration and Western governments from moving ahead with military assistance when they should have because they underestimated the Ukrainians and they overestimated the Russians. The, 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 a lot of the analysis in government and out of government painted Russia as this, you know, a, uh, 80 foot giant that that was invincible. <laughs> And, um, you know, look at the numbers of Russians reportedly that have been killed 
Um, it's approaching 30,000 troops. Yeah, that's, and yeah. the number of tanks, aircraft, ships, and things that have been destroyed by the Ukrainians, it is both a reflection of Ukrainians' capabilities and skill and determination and heroism, also their leadership under President Zelensky, versus an utterly incompetent mission that was given to Russian forces by Putin, by the Russian generals, and it doesn't seem to be getting a, a much better for the Russian side. Mm. It's, of course, been brutal and devastating for Ukrainians on the receiving ends of both indiscriminate and discriminate bombings by the Russians, because some of these bombings are deliberately targeting mm -hmm. uh, maternity wards and hospitals yeah. and schools and shelters, theaters where people are hiding. Um, steel plants in, in, in Mariupol and other places. So, I mean, it's just been barbaric, the campaign that has been conducted. And I think we, again, we shouldn't have underestimated that either. Monique, you you, you mentioned Syria, uh, the, the, the bombing of Aleppo. Yeah. Um, we can also go back to how Putin came to power in 99 and 2000, mm, yeah. with the leveling of Grozny. Unfortunately, this is not out of character for Russian forces in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah, and what he did to his own people, even before absolutely. even undertaking. Chechen, Chechens are, are, are Russian you know, citizens. Yeah, absolutely. And if he's going to do it to his incredible. own people, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, so well, we will circle back, okay, to Putin and towards the end because we have a question for you then uh, on that. Mm -hmm. In terms of what you were saying of Russian losses on the ground, the ISW, right, the Institute for War Studies. I had estimated, I think, 30% attrition rate. Um, this is their estimates based on what they mm -hmm. can find, so on and so forth. This is just a little bit of background information for whoever is listening. But let me ask you something really personal, David. What were you thinking on, like, the, the lead up, the, the, say, the two weeks before in about February the 24th? What was going through your head? <laughs> what did you feel? Because it's it's important that we all remember, you know, that those moments, sure. okay, so that we, they don't come again, you know, that's my feeling. All right. What's, yeah, what's yeah. yours? What did you? You know, I was, I, yeah, I was going back and forth on whether they would in fact go ahead with the invasion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I certainly wasn't ruling it out, but I also wasn't certain that it would happen in part because I was applying my sort of Western rational way of thinking, which I knew was not the way Putin thinks. And yet I couldn't help it because. I, I had argued in, uh, that the Ukrainians actually would put up a hell of a fight and that Putin would be making a mistake. And so I figured if I knew that, then Putin and the generals in, in Moscow had to have known that. Um, and, and so it just seemed to me to be so unnecessary and unjustified and unprovoked and uncalled every unword you, yeah, you can think of, of. And, <laughs> yeah, we and, get that. and yet it happened yeah so i was still living in miami before i moved to to dallas um on february 24th and uh, i was at florida international university and we were hosting a conference and it was a conference with people from from europe uh, a small conference not a not a major one and we had a ukrainian uh there and so I was supposed to make uh, uh, welcoming opening remarks and I broke down. I couldn't believe oh, it was wow. happening. Oh, um, you know, yeah. I just felt so horrible for, for Oleg and for his compatriots back home. And as the two of you, you know, we, we've been to Ukraine many times. We've been to Russia many times. Um, we, we have Russian and Ukrainian friends, Oleg yeah. in particular. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's heart wrenching to see these two countries 
go to war with each other. And it's all because one man woke up one day and decided this is what he That's wanted it. to do, that this is what he thought would serve his corrupt authoritarian personal interest, not his country's interest. There's no way this serves Russia's national interest. Um, but Putin thought it served no. his own interest. And mm -hmm. look at the devastating toll that has been exacted on the Ukrainian people. Yeah, no, no, devastating. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and Ukrainian people, and also, uh, I mean, for Russia, I mean, they lost, what, close to 30,000, like you said, yeah. in, um, you know, uh, what, a few months versus 15,000 with the Soviets in Afghanistan over a decade. I mean, that's that's a huge, huge toll, and that even shows not only the morale, because I remember I was following it very, very closely on the ground and getting, you know, all the chatter from uh, outside of when Russia was, uh, hey, caught on the border with Ukraine. The morale then was bad. I mean, they were they were COVID outbreaks. I mean, yeah. the the troops were parked we on about Ukraine's that. border yeah. for months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was just like even then they didn't understand what they were doing. And again, some do because some, you know, you have. This is where where it's very conflicting because on one end you have soldiers who didn't want to go and, you know, and some of them even defected or surrendered. And then you have others who have that like Russian nationalist, mm. you know, mm. mentality and you see the evils that they are doing, which goes back to their, you know, uh, hey, called differences with Ukraine over the past century or few centuries. And we saw that coming out in Bucha and we saw that coming out in other where it's like such a personal yeah. killing, mass killing that, I mean, it's not even, you know, like you see even between Syria where they wiped out villages. But here you see them actually like ripping out tongues of people and the torture. And just because they have like, you know, this personal feeling of of we have like to settle this yeah. finally. So it, it, yeah. it's very I mean, the whole situation is just horrific. it, it and, is. And, you know, it, it, it comes back to um, what we touched on before, which is the abusive dehumanizing treatment of mm -hmm. their own citizens in Chechnya, for example. Yeah. And, and so if they're not going to respect the rights of their own people, um, it, it, the Chechens we mentioned, but uh, the way they treat protesters, uh, ethnic right. Russians, right. Uh, killing journalists, killing opposition figures, poisoning people. Um, this is what they do to their yeah. own people, yeah. whether inside or outside Russia's borders. And so mm -hmm. if they do that to their own people, this is not a shock that they're going to treat other people this way, whether they're Syrians or Georgians or Ukrainians or Belarusians. Um, and, and, and so mm -hmm. there's a long track record here. We wanted to talk to you today about Athletic Greens. I started taking it a few months ago because, you know, we all put on COVID weight. I'm terrible with vitamins, but this has it all. And I do it first thing in the yep. morning. One scoop tastes fantastic. It up, tastes yeah, fantastic. drink it. Yeah. It does. It does. It tastes yeah. so good, yeah. and it gives me so much energy. Like I yeah. drink it, and yeah. then I'll have my coffee, and it like gives me this boost of energy. Mm -hmm. That um, yep. you know, it, it's amazing. Yep. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file. Athleticgreens.com slash 
Kremlin file to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Belarus, David, can you give us a bit of an update? What's happening there? Sure, sure. So, you know, of, of course, Lukashenko is tremendously dependent on Putin for staying in power after he stole the August 2020 election um, and then launched a brutal crackdown on peaceful protesters in Belarus. He has basically subjugated Belarus to Russian control. And I would argue without Putin's support, Lukashenko would have been gone by now. Uh, Putin came in with financial support. Remember, he sent TV Literally. presenters to replace Belarus TV presenters who resigned out of protest. Um, he's provided security assistance, including ammunition to deal with protesters. And then, of course, there have been the military exercises between Russia and Belarus. Mm -hmm. um, and then after the latest Zapad exercise, the Russian forces stayed on Belarus territory. Yeah. So what, what Lukashenko did do, yes, you're right, he didn't send in his own troops across the border into Ukraine, in part because I think he knew if he did that, he would have had a, a revolt on his hands. But he did allow Belarus territory to be used by Russian uh, forces and Russian military activity to launch uh, uh, bombing raids and other uh, uh, campaigns into Ukrainian territory. I mean, that's where the, the, the campaign toward Kyiv came from, uh, from Belarus yeah, territory. Yeah. So uh, but but what's also interesting is a lot of the Russians who have been killed and injured have been sent back to Belarus for handling. And so in some respects, Lukashenko, to the extent he's learning about this, is getting uh, an inside uh, scoop on what, what's happening to the Russian forces, how badly they're doing. And so interestingly, he gave an interview to the Associated Press uh, about a week or 10 days ago. Mm -hmm in which he offered some mild criticism of the military campaign, saying it had dragged on longer than he thought it would. And so he seems to be up to his old tricks of mm. hinting toward the West. That he, and he said he wants to play the role of peacemaker. He wants to help end the fighting. And so he's up to his old tricks again, where on the one hand, he's trying to offer an olive branch to the West to see if they'll bite. Um, on the other hand, he's so dependent on Putin, he can't risk crossing him. And so just the other day, he was in Moscow for a meeting mm. of the, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Mm -hmm. um, and and so uh, Lukashenko is really in a vice right now. And and you've seen people in Belarus actually try to sabotage some of the rail lines yeah. that go from Belarus into Ukraine mm -hmm. to block the Ru Russian advance. Um, you've seen other efforts by people. There's little support from what we can tell inside Belarus for the Russian military campaign because they recognize that um, uh, Lukashenko has allowed them be, to become a, a pawn in this. And, and, and so um, I, I do think that if Putin is in trouble, and I actually think there is a chance he could be for this terrible decision he's made to invade Ukraine, Lukashenko will follow immediately after. Lukashenko is so dependent on Putin for staying in power hmm. that if Putin's position is weakened and he's not able to sustain that support, uh, Belarus could see brighter days ahead as well. Oh, let's hope so. Let's Indeed. hope so. Let's hope it all falls, you know. And then we were yeah. talking to Olga because um, you had made some comments about Transnistria and Georgia, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You know, how you know, things are, there are, pockets and problems there as well. Should we start with maybe with Georgia, David? Sure. And so, you know, as we were talking before, um, in Assetia, the so-called leader there has talked about a referendum 
to uh, join with Russia. And uh, as you know, Russia has recognized South Ossetia and Abkhazia as independent states. Mm -hmm. But if they were to actually be annexed by Russia, become so-called Russian territory, then any military activity conducted by Georgia or uh, other kinds of activity would then be interpreted as an attack on Russia itself. The, the, the challenge, though, is that um, in some respects, Putin is getting what he wants from the current Georgian leadership anyway. Mm. Um, where you have Benzina Ivanashvili, the oligarch, pulling the strings mm -hmm. behind the scenes, mm -hmm. former prime minister after the 2020, uh, 2012 elections, rather, um, is the one who tells Prime Minister Garibashvili what to do. And so uh, mm. the Georgians have not joined sanctions, for example, uh, mm -hmm. against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Mm. They have criticized the Ukrainian government. There have even been comments by the Speaker of the Parliament and the head of the Georgian Dream Party suggesting that the Ukrainians provoke this uh, crisis themselves. Uh, the Ukrainians recall their ambassador from, from Georgia. And, and so a whole slew of, of problems that have emerged where the Georgians seem to be on a page very different from the West, the rest of the international, mm. or at least the Western community. Um, and, and the Russians, I think, are getting their way anyway. So they, they may not have to do anything militarily in, in Georgia. Moldova, by contrast, um, very pro-Western government, the most pro-Western government they've had, uh, led by yeah. Maya Sandu. Yep. Um, the Russians, I think, want to do whatever they can to try to destabilize the situation there. They, of course, have uh, forces on the ground, not a lot, but uh, around 1,200 forces, but uh, even a fair number of those are actually Transnistrians in the Transnistrian separatist region mm -hmm. of Moldova. Um, there's uh, an arms depot there uh, that poses a problem. And there have been some unexplained explosions on the Transnistrian territory mm -hmm. over the past few weeks. Yeah. And so the concern, I think, there is that, that Moldova sort of sits just beyond Odessa and might be viewed in Moscow, at least, as easy pickings, as, as low-hanging fruit. I don't mean to uh, make light of the situation there, but Putin is in desperate need of a victory. Okay. And I do worry that he may view Moldova as... Is, is a is a quick victory because Moldova doesn't have the military capabilities that Ukraine has, of course. Mm. It is a much more divided country. Um, but right now it has a very pro-Western government and Putin may want to try to deal with it. Keep in mind, so so what do these three countries have in common that that leaves them vulnerable? None of them is in NATO. And, and so mm. I think this is a reminder to us that countries that are in this gray zone, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, uh, even Belarus in a kind of different respect, are vulnerable to Russian pressure. I don't think Putin wants a conflict and a war with NATO, certainly not with the United States. But he views these countries who aren't in NATO as ones that are ripe for the picking, if you will. And, and, and so I think it underscores the need to think about membership with those countries mm -hmm. who want it, uh, whether it is Ukraine and Georgia, who were promised it in 2008, or Finland and Sweden, uh, which which just in the past few yep. days have applied for membership. That's right. That's right. They signed. Okay. Yeah. No. It's amazing. absolutely amazing. In fact, we're we're going to be talking about this uh, specifically. You know, the whole of the the changes to the security structure and infrastructure all across, yeah. architecture all across, right, Europe, and how this was. This is probably one of the most monumentous 
um, achievements, let's say, of, of NATO to be able to expand, and especially with Finland and no, with Sweden. Sweden was yep. Sweden was neutral yeah. for like two hundred years. You know, and so this is thank we can thank Putin. He was awarded actually by Darth okay. by Darth Putin. He was awarded the um the uh <laughs> best NATO employee. <laughs> Sorry, I had exactly. to crack that one. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I just laughed. Yeah. Darth is here with us. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to follow up on something with that because I actually just wrote an article for SIPA on um, Russia wanting to avoid a direct conflict with NATO or with the U.S. And I cited a very fascinating thing I saw developing inside of Russia with the ship mm -hmm. Moskva. So Russia, over the past few months, has blamed U.S. for everything. I mean, we've sent mercenaries in, chemical weapons, a dirty bomb, anything and everything you can name. Um, they have blamed us. And I mean, this goes back for the past 70 years. They blame Everything. us if, you know, a mountain, <laughs> like if there's a volcano eruption, it's like, oh, yep. the CIA did it. Um, so they've always blamed us for everything. Over the past few months with Ukraine, they've been setting the stage that we are, you know, responsible for everything and whatever. But with Moskva, they refused to acknowledge there was an attack. What's even more so interesting that um, there was a, hey, called the intel reports that came out via New York Times that uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence provided, um, you know, information, logistical information for that targeting. All Russian media ignored it except one outlet that's connected to an FSB, to FSB, Russia's intelligence services. They posted the headline. It stayed up. It was short-lived. It disappeared off their site. It's still found via Google search, but the article doesn't exist. But they did that. So where U.S. potentially, we don't know how true these intelligence reports are, but where U.S. potentially may have been involved in providing intelligence, Russia completely ignores, they don't want nothing because I feel like Putin didn't want to be put in a corner because then Russians would demand for him to respond. So going back to Moldova, I found something very interesting developing. There was a GRU agent who was one of the key players for um, for annexing Crimea and for occupation of Donbass. Igor Strelkin, Strelkov, or um, Gherkin. Gherkin. Yeah. So he, um, right before the explosions, he uh, gave an interview to the same, actually, Russian outlet. <laughs> um, that that's uh, an FSB front. He gave an interview to them and he said he had insider, which is BS, information that Romanians had crossed into Moldova and there was some warehouse and they had Moldovan uniforms for police and security forces and military. And Romanians were going to throw these uniforms on and start, uh, you know, a war inside of Moldova and attack Transnistria. <laughs> Do you think that Russia, like you said, does not want a direct confrontation with NATO, but can they do something like that, create a false flag operation where they potentially attempt to pull in a Romania or on the other side of Poland? Well, sure. I mean, I think I think any false flag operation is possible on their part. We in the United States with our intelligence agencies have done a good job in exposing a lot of these false flag operations almost 
disarming them, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, mm-hmm. preempting them mm-hmm. by by disclosing them. And I think that's been very effective. Um, but I, I, I will believe it more if we issue a warning that this kind of operation is underway rather than listening to Strelkov, you know, Gierkin, whatever name he wants to use. Okay. Um, it's not to say that he's wrong. He's actually been quite <laughs> um, uh, critical of Putin with the conduct of the war in Ukraine. Yes. And of course, we just saw on Russian TV earlier this week yeah. a, a retired colonel yeah. um, mm-hmm. offering criticism as well. It's, you know, these things are signs that things aren't going well. The, the Lukashenko interview with AP, um, it, the, the, the guy on Russian TV uh, on the 60 Minutes program mm-hmm. this week, mm-hmm. um, the Strelkov, and, and, you know, of course, uh, Leonid Ivashov before the war mm-hmm. issued a pretty blistering statement criticizing uh, the, the Kremlin for even thinking about um, an invasion. So and this is a sign when things aren't going well, when the rats start jumping ship. And it mm. seems like some of these rats are jumping ship. Lukashenko is one of the biggest rats around, of course. Um, and, and so, you know, when you, when you start seeing this, yeah. but, but just to reinforce your point, Olga, remember there are two incidents in the past, what, seven years, that underscore how the Russians don't want to uh, uh, have a war or conflict with NATO. 2015, November 2015, mm-hmm. when a Russian military jet violated Turkish airspace repeatedly, the mm-hmm. Turks warned it, the Russians didn't listen, and the Turks shot it down and killed yeah. two pilots. Yeah. And the Russians huffed and puffed, but they didn't do anything. Yeah. After the Russian ambassador was assassinated a couple uh, months later. Um, then in February 2018, yeah. Um, in Syria, again, Syria's sort of got the common denominator here. In Syria, again, uh, Wagner mercenaries, about three, 400 Wagner mercenaries were threatening U.S. forces in Syria. We warned them to back off. They didn't. U.S. military planes then bombed them and killed almost all of them. Yeah. Two to three, you know, between two to 400 mm-hmm. Russian citizens, Wagner mercenaries, um, not the nicest guys in the world. The Russians didn't say anything. Again, it's they don't care what happens to their own people, um, e- even the bad guys they send into these conflicts. And, and yet they also don't want to ratchet up tensions. Yes, they'll, they'll threaten use of nuclear weapons. Yes, they'll threaten to bomb the supplies that are coming in. But it, it, for all intents and purposes, they haven't done that um, because we are sending in lots of military equipment now to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. And the Russians don't seem to be doing much about it at all. There was that bombing the other day in Lviv. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it, they're not stopping the supplies going in. It, it underscores, one, that they don't want the conflict with NATO. And two, they're utterly incompetent. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my question. Do you think... Incompetent, yeah, corrupt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that was my question. Like, why they they simply cannot because they can't do it right now in the sense that they just don't have the capabilities. They don't have the coordination that that would take. Um, well, I mean, you know, we, we, you cited the numbers of killed compared sure. to the campaign in Afghanistan. Look at the number of generals that have been killed. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're having to send generals to the front line because they don't have confidence in the colonels and others who are mm. there. And as a result, a number of generals are getting killed. Um, and, and here, too, there may be a role of uh, Western intelligence helping the Ukrainians identify and spot them. But, but it isn't just Western intelligence. A lot of these Russians, the, the forces, the lower level grunt troops, if you will, as well as some of the officers, 
are using personal cell phones, which yeah. exposes them to the yeah. Ukrainian side and helps them with targeting. So again, it, it's it's a horrible job of of provisions of food, energy, uh, fuel, uh, weapons. And the, the 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 Russian campaign has gone about as badly as one could possibly imagine. And so, for all the supposedly overwhelming uh, quantity advantage that Russia has had, the quality has just been absolutely awful. Um, and it, 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 there are outside factors too. I mean, Turkish drones have made a difference in this campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Erdogan's playing some games now over Finland and Sweden's interest in joining NATO. Yeah. But Turkey has been providing Ukraine with a lot of military assistance that has had a a major impact on the battlefield. Our own drones, the switchblades and others, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. have also been very helpful. So, uh, and and this is where I think we have to think about um, that the Ukrainians are being replenished. Um, They are getting outside assistance to help them carry out and conduct this campaign. The Russians are not. They're having to bring in Syrians who aren't going to be able to make any difference. Wagner mercenaries who, you know, maybe are former military, but they're basically just throwing people into the mix here. And and there was no mobilization announced by Putin on May 9th. Um, But even if he did, if he mobilized people, first of all, they're going to come from Moscow and St. Petersburg, which isn't going to be Mm -hmm. popular. Uh, He's relied mostly on soldiers coming from the poorer regions Mm -hmm. because they don't have an alternative. And moreover, it takes months to train people to go into a a battle situation. And if he just throws them in without any preparation, they will just be slaughtered. But Putin doesn't care. Um, And and so this is why I think we can, for the first time, talk about the possibility, I'm not predicting this, but the possibility of a sudden Russian military collapse. Um, mm. Because the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives. They have morale on their side. Yeah. They have the West on their side. The Russians don't have morale on their side. They don't have the, the West as opposed to them as hit them with massive sanctions. And I just wonder how long Russian soldiers are going to be willing to put up with this and how long Russian generals and how long Russian FSB officers are going mm. to be willing to take the bullet for Putin, almost literally. Yeah, and GRU. And, and so I think we can, well. for the first time, talk about this mm-hmm. possibility. And if, if the military collapses, Putin mm-hmm. is finished. And then we have to start thinking about scenarios yep. in a post-Putin Russia. Mm. Can, actually, I want to go down that road. Yeah, yeah I'll ahead. never... Sorry, I'll never no, I was going to say, I'll never forget uh, reading an article, and then I had it confirmed... Um, of a, a Russian, uh, I think, general meeting with U.S. military attache in Moscow, a f- I think a few months ago. And they asked him, like, oh, so what do you think? Didn't you grow up in Ukraine? And he was like, and he, who's a very stoic general, mm. doesn't, you know, very disciplined, very trained, made a comment, basically, like, what do you think? And then just like walked Mm. out. And that's also another thing I think that Putin failed because there's so much crossover between Russians and Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Like I'm living proof of it. I'm both, you know, and, and there are plenty who are either both or have family, friends, you know, in, in both countries. So I think that's another thing. And, and then you add the corruption. I mean, the corruption, 
of stealing everything and the contracts and everything from uh, yeah. Russian military. That's a great I mean, point. Uh, yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> Basically, exactly. you see the results. Of I mean, that's such an important point years. because mm-hmm. everyone was getting worked up about the Russian military modernization and everything, mm-hmm. but we discounted the the role that corruption played in undermining yeah. that modernization effort. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a great there's a great article about that, how yeah. the misconception in the West was arrived at through simple going and putting a little too much emphasis on the numbers and not looking like on quantity, exactly. but not on quality and also on the whole corruption. Uh, I mean, look, we, we, you know, right, Olga, we've been talking about oligarchs and we've been talking about Russia for over a year. Right. And you've been uh, you've been doing mm-hmm. research on them forever in a day. So it's incredible how this was. Oh, they, they robbed yeah, everything. Well, this is they... what I mean. It, it's incredible how this was miscalculated. Right. Not taking into account uh, something key, here, which is a here, key. here, though. Yeah, in... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's here because my mom is Russian, right? Um, and when you know, when like she kept watching the news, and she's like, "Oh, this mighty Russian military," she was laughing. She was like, "Well, mighty military, <laughs> like the hospitals in Russia have like holes and rust and holes in the ceiling." She's like, "These people rob everything, like for out of I don't know a million dollar contract by the time that." The actual yeah. money gets to invest into what that contract. It's probably like two hundred thousand. Everything else goes into everybody's pocket. Pocket, and yeah. it's like you know, yeah, no, no. The corruption there is, I mean, so out of control. And now you see the result because I'm military. I mean, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know, one one, one thing along those lines <laughs> is who's going to want to buy a Russian tank after this? Yeah, who's exactly. Who's going to want to buy a Russian military it's vehicle? True. It's I mean, true. Russian arms sales, as you know, have been important to yeah. Russia's economy. Yeah. Yeah. And and after this campaign, after the yeah. display of how the uh, Russian military equipment performs, who's going to want to buy this stuff? Yeah. Um, unless it's at a tremendous discount. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. it, it, the corruption, <laughs> the, know, the right? poor quality. But, but, you know, maybe the last thing I would say is you have to look at the motivation. Mm-hmm. Why are the Ukrainians fighting? They're fighting for their country. They're fighting yeah. for their freedom. Yeah, they're yeah. fighting for their families. Um, they know why they are fighting. They, they don't understand why they're being attacked, but they know why they're fighting. The Russians who have been sent yeah. there have no clue why they're they're invading Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you were just saying, Olga, about the, the ties between the two countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and and with and Putin, you know, we mentioned this before. Putin talked about the one people. And 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 the justifications that the Kremlin kept drumming up mm-hmm. were, were ridiculous. Moving targets, yeah. denazification. The Ukrainians were pursuing nuclear weapons. They were going to allow NATO to station forces on their territory. It, just one absurd theory after another, and none of them held up. And and so as a result, um, it's a mess for for the Russians and for Putin. And and you're right for families whose sons and fathers and brothers have been sent to the war and either won't come back or will come back in body bags. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if the, the, not a great deal of sympathy for them, but tremendous sympathy for the Ukrainians, but also just a, a, a huge salute to the Ukrainian people, military and civilian, um, who have stepped up to oh, defend their nice. country. Um, with mm-hmm. great leadership by President Zelensky. Yeah. I mean, talk about a, a person yeah. stepping into the war, role of a wartime president. 
he has done it brilliantly. And, um, you know, Slava Ukraina. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And we have to keep up our part. And you mentioned, you had written... No, we also have to keep up our part, right? Up on this. Absolutely. Because I'm starting to see some really disturbing signs coming out of Europe. And I don't want to get into this, like, really into depth. But I'm I'm actually quite worried that um, not so much the states, because I can see, right? And maybe you can answer this, David, and Olga, but... What I'm seeing from my part over here is that already between France, Germany, and Italy, they're already starting to say, well, let's see, you know, how the the peace has to come. The peace has to come. They're not defining it. We're starting to get sort of that air or winds of appeasement, which is totally unacceptable. What's your view on this, David? Yeah, I mean, you know, President Macron has tried to reach out and talk to Putin about this. the, the Ukrainians are confident. They think they're going to win. Mm-hmm. And uh, just yesterday, it seemed that the negotiations that had now moved to a virtual format have ended. Uh, the Ukrainians are fed up. The Russians yeah. aren't taking it seriously. And I, I think Zelensky it feels that he has the possibility of regaining a lot of Ukrainian territory that was seized not just in this latest round of mm-hmm. war, but going back to 2014, Crimea might be a little harder down the road, but the Ukrainians are making significant inroads here and the Russians are not. And so I, I think we have to follow the Ukrainian lead. They're the ones doing the fighting. They're the ones who are dying on the battlefield. We're it's not. Country. The least we can do is to make some sacrifices yeah. when it comes to filling up our, our gas tanks, uh, you know, going to the yeah. grocery store. Um, they're not asking us to send our forces to fight for them. They are asking us to send the military means so that they can defend themselves. And, you know, shame on us if we start suffering from fatigue from this. Uh, They're the ones on the front lines uh, dealing with this night and day. They're the ones whose homes are being destroyed. Um, they're, They're suffering terrible losses, but they're also showing tremendous bravery and heroism and determination of the least, as you say, Monique, we can do is to get behind them and support. Yeah, well, it's it's really it's quite scary. It's also another thing too is that they've sort of the kind of um, what I'm hearing a lot is that sort of the respect for a Ukrainian agency is not there. Absolutely, and this Great is point. something that bothers me quite a bit because Great it point. is their country, and they should be deciding exactly what they want what kind of peace they want, when they're going to be ready for that. And it's not up to us. We are there to defend. They're defending our democracy. They're defending our values. Okay. Absolutely. So this is something that I feel very, very strongly about as, you know, uh, as you said, Slavo Ukraini to all of our friends. Yes. I just, Uh, yeah. I just don't understand it because I mean, I don't even understand. You know what it is? I think the West w- likes to have everything kind of sorted with like, you know, yeah. kind of like nice all wrapped up, packaged, nice, mm. neat. And they keep offering this. Yeah. Like, oh, the negotiations. Like, how do you negotiate with a leader exactly. who wants exactly. to a campaign? I mean, this is more than even just yep. a mass murder. Or, you know, the mass graves. This is a genocide campaign. They're targeting and striking all cultural centers in Ukraine. They're trying to erase Ukrainian heritage. So how do you sit at a table and, like, what do you negotiate? Like, where where does it even begin? Like, can we exist, please? I mean... 
David, you what know? do we do with a with a problem like Putin? I wrote an article on this. Let's see what your what your uh, how should we be dealing with him? Um, treat him as the pariah he is. Um, I, I would argue we we don't ease up on any sanctions as long as he remains in power. Um, he is off limits. Um, I think you know President Biden has called him a war criminal, a thug, a murderer. He has used the word genocide. He said, and I actually was not bothered by what he said at all when he said, for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power. He wasn't saying U.S. Yeah. policy is regime change. Right. He was expressing a sentiment that I would hope we could all yeah. get behind, sure. frankly. Sure. And and so uh, th- there should be no business as usual. I, I support taking um, frozen Russian assets and actually seizing them and using them for reconstruction of the Ukraine. I, I, I can't imagine how we could return any of those assets to Russia mm-hmm. after the damage that Putin has inflicted on Ukraine. So uh, I, I think keep the pressure up as much as possible. Don't talk about off ramps. Don't talk mm-hmm. about exits. Don't talk about face saving ways ahead. That is Putin's problem. Mm-hmm. He has control over the narrative in Russia for now, at least. He can create his own off ramps and, and exits. Um, Timothy Snyder actually posted yeah. a, a, a tweet, it's a great Twitter tweet. thread, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. I don't tweet, uh, but somebody said that to me. Um, yes. It is a great tweet. We agree yeah. completely. That's his problem, not ours. Yeah. So keep the pressure on um, and recognize him for the evil he is, frankly. Yes, we agree. We agree. We agree. And I want to have one follow-up question which um, I've been observing and I ignored it at the beginning until I see serious people now picking it up. So Russian intelligence services seem to be, you know, uh, having fun and putting out that Putin is sick. Putin is about to have surgery. Putin is dying. Then Putin's uh, mistress, Kabieva, just got (laughs) pregnant again and he found out. I mean, it's so much nonsense. And David, you know, I mean, in in Russia, someone easily can die, a senior figure, and, you know, they'll cover it up for months until they figure it out. So they're putting this out. My concern is because now it's really become, you know, went from British-like rag outlets to now it's becoming more mainstream. My concern is... um, do you think Putin is preparing to put a new face on the Kremlin? And if so, you said keep the sanctions, keep everything as long as Putin is there. What if he attempts to, you know, pretend to step aside or pretend something and put a new face on the Kremlin, but it's still the same general, same leadership, same yeah, security it's, council, yeah, and same it's a good question. So let me amend my answer then? to Monique, which is as long as the Putin system remains in power, certainly as long as Putin okay. stays in power, but as long as the system okay. does. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, he played games in 2008 with the uh, switcheroo with Medvedev. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. No one really fell for that. And um, but it is interesting that this these stories and rumors are coming out. Um, he, he he doesn't look great. Um, and um, I don't know what's wrong with him. I'm not sure anyone does. But um, I also don't have any sympathy for him whatsoever. Uh, this is a yeah. man who has inflicted so much damage mm-hmm. on his own people, <laughs> on his neighbors, on mm-hmm. Syrians and others. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so, you know, maybe it's a sign that people are not as fearful as they were. Um, but he obviously is trying to instill fear in people and in the system because that's how he operates. He can't operate based on 
popular support. He operates based on instilling fear and hope that people will self-censor as well as um, recognize the risk they face if they go out and protest. Yeah. So keep the pressure on him and the system. You're absolutely right to point that out. Yeah. Well, we didn't deal with him before. We let it all right. go. We appeased. Right. We went along yeah. uh, for various reasons. Each country had their own reasons, so on and so forth. This is the perfect opportunity to you know, to stick with our values and what all right, we've set out since yep. no Agreed. since this, and also Agreed. in complete complete support of ukraine because this is what 100%. what is uh necessary Best way actually to help russia yeah support ukraine and the other countries in the region yeah exactly that's the best way to do it exactly okay great. david this has been such a yeah. great chat as always thank you we're very so much to happy you've come along thank you Hey everybody, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camara. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, we are recording. Right. <laughs> no, that's okay. We'll get we'll cut out. <laughs>